0: Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens.
1: While also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, and government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from tonight's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available at tah.org. And you can participate as well in this discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. I will occasionally be going to that and, uh, and reading questions aloud. The subject of today's program is James Monroe's 7th Annual Message to Congress from 1823, at least those parts of that are better known to us today as the Monroe Doctrine. To help discuss it, our doctors our, is our Dr. Eric Pullen, Associate Professor of History at Carthage College, and Dr. Jay Sexton, Kinder Institute Chair in Constitutional Democracy and Professor of History at the University of Missouri. Eric J, welcome. Glad you could be with us tonight. Great to Great be here. To be here. All right. Well, let me just start you off with a very general question. Monroe Doctrine. Most people have heard of it. Uh, probably most people don't know what it means. Uh, why is it so so important to understanding American history?
2: Uh, Jay, I, I want to give this. Uh, I want to give you the first shot here because uh, you're you've recently published on the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah, well, I
0: here. The, the, then let me emerge am i have i emerged for the uh, everybody in video form okay so why why is it so important why is the monroe doctrine so important i think that it's important for two reasons the first one is that it responded to an acute crisis or at least what the contemporaries what the the statesmen and the broader public in 1823 considered to be a very acute international crisis so it had a legacy uh, for that reason and that leads me to the second reason why i think it's a a long-lasting document why it's something we're still talking about it almost 200 years later and that is because subsequent generations of americans have looked to the monroe doctrine uh, for inspiration for guidance um, and in, and indeed to look to it for direction in how they related to peoples not just of the Western Hemisphere, which is of course what the uh, a text talked about most directly, but also international relations more generally.
1: Okay eric what would you like to add
2: well i i'd like to echo uh exactly what uh professor Sexton just uh, offered is that it the monroe doctrine uh addressed a uh an important problem in its time and uh echo also that it has been used by subsequent practitioners of foreign policy going into the 20th century in fact even as recently as uh uh, as the Obama administration, whether to negate or affirm it. But uh, the thing I think I would add in addition to what Professor Sexton said is that uh, what is interesting uh, and noteworthy about the Monroe Doctrine is that it, it, whether it was John Quincy Adams uh, or, or President uh, Monroe or the subsequent practitioners of American foreign policy who invoked the Monroe Doctrine, did so by uh, referring to American principles. And whether they were sincere or uh, disingenuous about how they uh, they used the Monroe Doctrine, one of the things that I think that uh, uh, stands as a continuing theme throughout American history as, as relates to the Monroe Doctrine is the idea that it's quintessentially American.
1: Hmm. Okay, well, Jay mentioned the, uh, the, the immense crisis or the immense perceived crisis that this was written in response to. Can you say a little bit more about the nature of that crisis?
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the crisis in the 1820s was the climax of a much longer international process uh, in which uh, European old world uh, colonial structures and institutions uh, were eroding. Uh, were collapsing uh, across the ocean in the Western Hemisphere. So the American version, which we're most familiar with, is of course the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Um, the Monroe Doctrine dealt with the United States's response to the collapse of the Spanish Empire, um, the Spanish Empire, which had collapsed really at the beginning of the. 19th century process of very complex, very convoluted uh, revolutions, uh, wars of independence, which had reached their apogee or their climax in 1823. And most of the former Spanish colonies had become independent uh, republics. Now, whether or not they would stay independent, whether or not their uh, form of government would remain republican, or it might revert to uh, monarchies or aristocracies other types of political organization was the question that was facing the Monroe administration in 1823 and the final little spin on the crisis was of course the threat the persistent threat that the reactionary powers of the old world would intervene would would cross the Atlantic to crush the rebellions and to reimpose some form of colonial rule on these new uh, Spanish Um, American states. So that was the crisis. Um, I said one more thing. Let me add one more thing. Finally, the other bit of the crisis or the context, the backstory to this was, of course, British policy, Great Britain, now the world's preeminent power in 18. Uh, 23, after the defeat of Napoleonic France in 1815. Britain, um, which wanted uh, trading opportunities in Spanish America, but was not quite sure if it wanted the types of political constitutions, the forms of government that the United States wanted, that we were just hearing about, about American forms of politics. So the British policy was a real X factor for the United States and a precipitant. Of the um, uh, Monroe Doctrine itself, which was written in response to a um, what initially, at least, was a British offer of joint Anglo-American action to um, to deter the reactionary powers of continental Europe from intervening
1: across the Atlantic. Fascinating, Eric.
2: Yeah, uh, what I'm about to add is really a footnote to uh, to what Professor Sexton said. I, I think he's dead on. I think he identifies the uh, the Latin American revolutions and uh, Britain's ambivalence about how to deal with these revolutions and and what it should do in the Western Hemisphere. But I'd also like to add that there are uh, events uh, occurring in Greece and also in uh, the western part of North America. That are motivating the uh, the Monroe administration to uh, uh, to assert American uh, jealousy uh, in the hemisphere. In and, um, and, and these these two tensions work against each other. So let me let me draw this out a little bit. Uh, in in Greece in 1820, 1821, uh, 20, you have uh, uh, the Greeks. Uh, engaging in a revolution against the uh, 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 the Ottoman Turks Uh, and and many, many uh, progressives, many liberals, many Democrats, little d Democrats, uh, uh, little r Republicans, people who believe in um, uh, national self-assertion are demanding that the United States and other similarly minded Democratic countries support the Greek Revolution against the Turks in addition uh, what's happening on on the uh, on the west coast of the North American continent is that the uh, the Russians the Imperial Russians are uh, moving or they they're, they're laying claims to areas such as Alaska and claiming territory as south as the 55th parallel and John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State and President James Monroe, uh, are both of a mind to say on the one hand the russians should not be doing what they're doing and on the other hand they're saying well maybe we shouldn't get involved in a greek revolution and so the monroe doctrine is a uh is a sort of a, a, and i don't want to make too much of this but a, but i'm going to say it anyway a uniquely american response to all of these international events but I, but I will emphasize that Professor Sexton's emphasis on Latin American revolutions is probably the most important.
1: Okay, uh, we have our first question from a participant. Uh, Larry Fada asks, uh, we know that the, the document was largely the work of John Quincy Adams. Out of curiosity, how much did President Monroe contribute to this text? Do we know
0: That you know, it's that that's a a great question. Um, I mean, the the authorship of of any of these sorts of documents, and of course, the the place to begin to answer that question is say this is the what we now call the State of the Union address. Um, Back in the nineteenth century, it was called the annual message. The annual message was quite different than uh, the State of the Union address today, in the sense that it was not. Uh, verbally delivered by a president, but was rather delivered in paper form to Congress. And it was always, I shouldn't say always, but almost always uh, jointly authored. So the president would delegate uh, to his uh, cabinet officials. The uh, initial drafts for the sections on the post office on foreign affairs, on the on the state of the finances, to the Secretary of Treasury, and so forth. So the first thing I think to to say in response to that question is it's very typical of this type of document for it to be uh, the product of a uh, multiple multiple authors. That's the first point. Second point is that John Quincy Adams was the principal author of the early drafts on the section on foreign affairs. So what becomes uh, known as the Monroe Doctrine um, can be traced to John Quincy Adams quite clearly. Um, We also know from his diary, which is a side note, is one of the best sources of 19th century political history. John Quincy Adams's diary, which goes all the way up until the 1840s, meticulously kept and particularly in this period of uh, October and November of 1823 when the administration is drafting its response to the uh, international crisis, we know from his diary that the, the text of this actual um, State of the Union annual message addressed was discussed at length by the the full cabinet, and it had input not just of Secretary of uh, State Adams, but also the Secretary of the, of the Treasury, um, uh, Secretary of War, John C. Calhoun, James Monroe. The Attorney General, William Wirt, had some very um, important input in it as well so that is a long-winded way of saying it's there's multiple authors there's a lot of, of chefs in that kitchen but Adams is clearly the the defining figure in it and actually some of the one of the key paragraphs from the message the so-called non-colonization clause Adams had earlier drafted um, in response in a routine sort of diplomatic um response to the Russians, which we were hearing about earlier on the Pacific Northwest. So Adams is the predominant author, but everybody has a say in it. It is a collective document and, and if we want to see this as a, as a quintessentially American document, I think that would help make that case actually, that it's not the product of a, of a single figure, but, uh, of the, uh, collective statesmen, um, operating in
1: 1823. Eric?
2: Oh, I, couldn't, I, I can't add a thing to that. that, that, that I agree
1: completely. Okay. Um, mentioning it as a quintessentially American statement, uh, it leads me to wonder whether the importance of this document lies in what it tells us about the American mind of the early 19th century as opposed to what it tells us about foreign affairs. I guess this is a, another way of asking, does this matter? I mean, if Spain had been able to reconquer its Latin American colonies, was there a thing that the United States could have done to stop it? And, and so did this even enter into the calculations of the European powers?
2: Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll jump in if I may. Uh, m- my sense is that no, this this is a document of opportunity. Uh, the, Spain could not reassert itself. Professor Sexton might uh, might disagree with me. But uh, no, I think that's exactly why the United States uh, issues such a document is because, is precisely because of Spanish impotence. Uh, at the same time, I think uh, that the, uh, the United States appreciates, and, and most particularly and specifically, John Quincy Adams appreciates that uh, no one's getting across the Atlantic without the permission or the... Uh, uh, Acquiescence of the British Royal Navy, and so uh, given those ideas, this is an uh, uh, or given those not ideas but given those those facts or those appreciations of of, of foreign policy, I think that uh, Adams sees this as a remarkable opportunity to assert American power at no cost, and the reason why why I call it a, a quintessentially American document is. Uh, not because I'm an unalloyed cheerleader of of American foreign policy, but rather it's it's a document that has a protean character. Uh, it it seems to it seems to lose its meaning and force after the uh, the Monroe uh, administration. And initially, it's a document that that says, "Hey, no new powers can assert themselves in the uh, in the Western Hemisphere," and it later, and we can we can talk about this in more detail uh, with subsequent questions, but but it becomes a document that justifies American uh, the American exertion of, of of its foreign policy might. So uh, I, I hope I'm answering your question, but uh, you know there are other there are other perspectives on this as well. Okay,
1: Jay,
0: yeah, add to I mean what I what I would say um, first is that the the real threat in 1823. Wasn't that that the Spanish were going to cross the Atlantic? It was that uh, the French and a, a consortium of of monarchical powers, led led by the French, would that that's that's the the first point. The second point, your question was, um, you know, could the United States really do anything to stop this, or was this document just a paper tiger? Um, And that is one of the most important questions asked during those cabinet deliberations uh, when they're framing this, uh, the draft text of the annual message, and it's asked by the Attorney General, William Wirt, and he says, you know, what are we going to do if we announce our opposition to this and the powers send their forces over anyways? And Adams in his diary says, man, that was a great question. Uh, Then he also says, or he doesn't say directly, but reading between the lines, he reveals that that question was never answered. The administration never came up with an answer to that question. One more point. Um, In many ways, this whole thing was a phony crisis because the British um, initially came to the United States and asked for joint action to deter France and her allies from intervening. Um, That message is, is given to the American minister in London, it's discussed with the foreign secretary, the British foreign secretary, Lord Canning, then it has to be shipped all the way over to Washington, that takes about six weeks, it's discussed for several weeks, there's no clear answer given to it immediately, and as time elapsed, or in this interregnum, the British foreign secretary had met with the French ambassador and they had struck an agreement that France would not intervene. So in essence, the Monroe Doctrine was announced, enunciated after the crisis had already been solved by um, uh, by the British foreign secretary. So the whole thing, so your initial question was, is this episode really revealing something about how America thinks of itself and thinks of the world rather than Um, a definitive weighing in on an international crisis, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, The crisis really never existed, and to the extent to which it did, it had already been resolved before uh, December 2nd, 1823, the date uh, of the Monroe Doctrine.
1: Well, this helps to to answer another question that a participant has raised. Uh, I'm wondering why the British acquiesced and even helped support the Monroe Doctrine, since the U.S. didn't have the power to back the words at that time, rather than trying to expand its empire into South America?
0: Well, it's a, it's a great question if I can take the first stab at it. I mean, I think the answer to it is that uh, British conceptions of empire and national interests are evolving in this period. And the British empire is moving away from the kind of model of colonization, of sending... Um, immigrants to North America to settle and then to be ruled over. It's moving away from that, at least in the Western Hemisphere, I should say, it's moving away from that to more of of a hybrid informal mechanism of empire. Um, which prioritized the creation of new markets, of foreign uh, trading systems, investment patterns, essentially, uh, in effort to reap the rewards of empire, uh, while reducing the costs. You know, to get rid of those costly overheads of empire, of having to directly rule over populations that might rebel against you. Um, and to attempt to uh, reap the benefits through commerce, trade, and investment. Now, just to clarify, that is the British policy um, as its emerging piecemeal in Latin America. That is not the British policy in, say, India at this same time, or even in bits of the Caribbean where there's still the legacy of a more traditional um form of of colonial rule but the answer is that the the british are starting to change and of course that will be the hallmark of the of the apogee of the british empire in the victorian era really not a system uh um, um, of imposed rule so much as a economic order or regime which britain exploits very deftly to its own advantage and benefit
1: okay
2: eric you care to add to that uh I don't know if I'm answering your question. Your, your question is more about Britain than it is the United States. Am I right?
1: Um, well, it's why why was Britain willing to go along with this policy?
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't think I could, I could add much to that. I, I, I think that uh, I, I might take it in a slightly different direction by saying, why is it that the United States wouldn't just go along with Britain? and uh, i think professor Sexton yep. will know the quotation better than i will uh but john quincy Adams says something along the lines of uh, uh we don't want to be a cockboat in the wake of a british frigate uh is it, is it ru- a rough paraphrase yeah that's uh, right yeah and and the idea is that uh if if the united states uh goes along with britain and appears to uh to uh, uh sanction Britain's proposal after the fact, then John Quincy Adams, I think, has successfully reasoned then that the United States has reduced itself to the junior partner of of Great Britain. What's more is we're only talking about, uh, gosh, five or six years after the uh, the War of 1812 has ended. And uh, the last thing Americans want to do is be perceived as British subordinates. So uh, John Quincy Adams, I think, successfully reasons that it's in Britain's interest to uh, 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 to patrol the seas and keep. Uh, uh, I'll say I'll agree with uh, Professor Sexton uh, on uh, on the French, but also the uh, the Holy Alliance or and especially the Russians uh, mm-hmm. coming at. Uh, North America from the other way, from the Pacific, rather than from the Atlantic, as the French would do. But basically, the United States want to appear as if they are in control of events, or it is in control of events, rather than following uh, Britain's lead. None of what I just said is inconsistent at all with what I, I, I think uh, uh, J said. But uh, I think it. I think it bears stating that. At least, in my opinion, what one of John Quincy Adams—and forgive me if I keep stressing the Z—just uh, what was drilled into me when I was an undergraduate by uh, one of my professors—and uh, uh, is is basically the idea uh, that the United States wants to appear as if it as if it is in the frigate and not in the in the cockboat or in the dinghy behind the larger ship.
1: A certain amount of this, I would think, would have something to do with Adam's own origins. I mean, as one of our participants pointed out, he had extensive diplomatic experience of his own, but just as importantly, he is son of of, of one of the most prominent Federalists uh, in, a, uh, in a Democratic administration. And sure, this is supposed to be the era of good feelings where parties don't matter, but uh, I would think that Adam's is eager to avoid any suggestion from others in the administration that he's pro-british would that be uh, is that a fair estimate
0: oh yeah i think I, absolutely i mean that's the um, that is always the way to um, end a political career in the 19th century is uh, is uh, is appearing to be pro pro-british um, though interestingly uh, you know calhoun and monroe um, in in those cabinet discussions, they're prepared to sign up to the British deal uh, when the British first approach uh, for joint action. They're they're prepared to sign up uh, to the British deal, even with the poison pill that comes with that British deal, and that is the condition of uh, of of that alliance with Britain to stop. The Holy Allies from intervening in the New World. The condition was that uh, both of the signatories, both Britain and the United States, would renounce any intention to formally annex or acquire new territories of the of, of the former Spanish Empire. Um, so I think Adams, he's Adams, is the quintessential expansionist of this period. He's got his eyes on uh, Texas uh... then part of uh... the the new state of mexico he's got his eyes on cuba um, he thinks both will be valuable additions to the union he says it very clearly he says that's too high of a price to pay to sign up for the british proposal when britain he predicts will oppose a french intervention anyway so why would we agree to these terms it's a bad deal Right? Now, I think the thing that needs more explaining, actually, is the thinking of Calhoun and Monroe in the cabinet. Why are they prepared to sign up um, to this deal, which would foreclose the possibility of annexing um, Texas and Cuba in the future? Um, and this is something in which, really, the historical record is not helpful or at least is not as helpful as we would wish it to be. Adams does not record their mindset quite as clearly as he records his own, uh, which is the advantage of being someone who drafts the minutes of a meeting or enters the the record in a diary. I mean, the sense that I have is that Monroe and Calhoun have a heightened uh, sense of risk and of uh, security risk if there is to be a European intervention in the Western Hemisphere I think that this is no doubt linked in some way to the perceived vulnerabilities of the Southern states because of slavery Um, slavery is the big a dog that doesn't bark in this whole episode it's not in Adams's diary it's not in the Monroe Doctrine itself but slavery is a crucial issue it had just been behind the Great Missouri crisis which had only recently uh, been resolved there were emerging factions for and against a building up to the great jacksonian debates over slavery in the coming decades so it's in the air uh, and i think it conditions the security uh, mindset the perception of threat and risk of the different americans in that cabinet so adams as a northerner i think doesn't doesn't think that there's as much risk in um dealing or taking a tough stand with the british and the europeans as do calhoun and monroe with the experience of course of the revolution and the war of 1812 fresh in mind in which international conflict has a way of destabilizing slavery therefore you must prevent international conflict at all costs now again that's my gloss on it because it's not clear in the record it's one of the more frustrating things there, but it must have been on their minds in some way. And this is where the job of the historian is really fun. It's not to make things up, but it's to make reasoned um, inferences based on evidence and contextual evidence and data and circumstances, and to try to understand and recreate the very complex multidimensional mindsets of of these statesmen.
2: Eric. Well, John, yeah, I, I just I really want to emphasize uh, the 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 point about uh, international conflict destabilizing the institution of slavery. And uh, I don't want to give away too much of the game here, but uh, both John Quincy Adams and John C. calhoun will will switch, in a sense, uh, as we get closer to the uh, to the Mexican-American war. But uh, one of the things that I, I, I think is really remarkable about international conflict, especially in the uh, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, as it relates to the United States, is that the more the United States expands, the more the United States gets involved in foreign countries, the more the institution of slavery is, in fact, threatened. Uh, the uh, you know the acquisition of the uh, uh, the Mexican Cession. Uh, Talk of, uh, I mean, Cuba has been a source of uh, desire uh, on the part of the American uh, or the United States since, uh, goodness, since at least the Adams administration. And the idea that Cuba, with its uh, large uh, African population, should become part of the United States is something that I think caused a great deal of controversy in in the in the American Republic, and the controversy stemmed from not knowing what to do with this large African population. Should we enslave them? Uh, should we treat them like uh, uh, like we treat uh, the uh, the people of Haiti? And, and Haiti itself is a, is another great example of the destabilization of of uh, of the institution of slavery because the the revolution in slavery uh, I'm sorry the revolution in Haiti led by uh, Toussaint Louverture and uh, and slaves uh, effectively led uh, Americans of both North and South to say we're not going to recognize this country we're, or, or if if not officially recognize this country we're not going to deal on equal terms with with. Mm-hmm. Af- people of African descent who are uh, are sovereign over themselves, and these cause problems for. And this this I think takes. I hope I'm not being too confusing here, but it takes me back to the idea of the uh, uh, the Monroe Doctrine being a quintessentially American document, because there are contradictions written into the document, and 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 not just the document, but the documents that support it. There's all this talk about freedom, but like like Professor Sexton says. Slavery is this unspoken gorilla in the room that uh, no one's talking about, but everyone knows is important to determining the nature, not only of how the United States keeps foreign competitors out of the Western hemisphere, but also how the United States manages its own expansion in the Western hemisphere.
1: Okay. David Cedar asks a question of to what extent is religion a motivation here? Of course, when we talk about uh, France and especially Spain, we're talking about Catholic powers. Uh, the, the the black legend of the Spanish is something that runs deep in the uh, in the American tradition is is at least part of the concern about uh, Latin America being recolonized, uh, a fear of uh, of uh, international uh, international Catholicism
0: oh, yeah, I mean I, abs- I absolutely absolutely, And you know it's one of those things I think that it takes a lot of historical imagination for us to recapture that the the visceral hatred of Catholicism um, among um uh, among not just the American Protestant elite, but also the the British Protestant elite. So um, I, I think that's there. Um, I think uh, two more things about religion and the Monroe Doctrine. The first is that, um, uh, you know, in the broader context of how the United States begins to open up uh, diplomatic relations with these new um, uh, states in uh, Spanish America, um, you know, it has essentially the three. Agendas the United States does when it re- recognizes the independence of these new states. The, the first agenda is to promote a republican form of government um, in Spanish America as opposed to a monarchical form of government. Uh, the second agenda is to uh, promote some kind of uh, commercial reciprocity or uh, economic arrangement in which there would be reciprocal um, trade and investment patterns that would be encouraged by the states themselves and then the third thing uh, often underappreciated is that the uh, john quincy adams as secretary of state he's always banging on about um... religious toleration he wants uh, uh, he doesn't want Protestants to be discriminated against. Uh, there's not huge numbers of Protestants. I think he's probably thinking uh, more of uh, 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 enclaves of American and British merchants than anything else. But he's attempting to introduce the principle of uh, religious toleration. So that that's important there. The final point about how religion plays in or fits into all this is, of course it's um it's an argument that cuts both ways when it comes to in uh, the question of should the United States attempt to cultivate close relations with these new states? Um Many would say, uh, we have a religious duty. religious duty to uh, spread the principles of toleration and indeed um, that's really the thin end of the wedge to spread protestantism if you think about it but their opponents would say you know what the the state of catholicism in the spanish empire um is is so corrupt um and it's degraded the spanish americans to such an extent that they are probably incapable of self-government um uh, we can't trust them they will not be able to build the institutions of civil society and government to create a functioning state because the Catholic Church has suppressed all of those tendencies uh, over the course of centuries, so they're just simply unprepared. Uh, This is a classic kind of anti-Catholicism argument that you see throughout the 19th century, even into the 20th century, I should say. You see this oftentimes when um, Americans are contemplating what to do in the Philippines uh, after after eighteen ninety eight. so religion is absolutely there. Um, but the takeaway is it it doesn't lead inexorably into one uh, policy direction. It can go into multiple multiple different policy directions. and and that's something that's debated about not just by the statesmen, but also in in the press of the time. The journals of the time are are going back and forth on this issue of Catholicism, Protestantism, and the uh, capacity for self-government of the Spanish Americans.
2: Eric. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, what what Jay is saying is dead on target. And I, if if I may, i uh, just like to refer us to uh, John Quincy Adams' speech on Independence Day. And uh, one of the things that really strikes me about the document, <clears throat> is, I mean, what I know about John Quincy Adams is that he was a type of man uh well let me let me let me start over when i when i think of john quincy adams i think of america's best pre-president and america's best ex-president and one of yeah. america's worst presidents and i and i think to myself uh when i'm when you know when i'm uh, approaching it from that perspective that john quincy adams is about the last guy i would want to have a beer with uh, I, I have tremendous respect especially for when he was in the House of Representatives after his presidency, uh, leading the fight against slavery. And uh, his, uh, you know, he, I, I think his greatest moment was in uh, opposing the gag rule. But what about his personality? His personality is such, that th- I mean, this is a man who would wake up at uh, four, four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock if he was feeling very lazy and would teach himself uh, or he would learn uh scriptures for for hours before you know while uh i think while they're negotiating the uh uh, the end of the war of 1812 uh henry clay is just coming in from an evening of gambling and drinking and uh john quincy adams is just getting up to uh uh, to learn his scripture Uh, why am i telling you this i'm telling you this because he's not a fun guy but That said, I'm looking through this document and I see, gosh, I see so much commentary about religion. And it doesn't match up with the John Quincy Adams I know, unless I I use the historical imagination that Professor Sexton is talking about. And you realize that when he says uh, negative, critical, uh, condemnatory uh, things about religion, he's not talking about religion as a disaggregated whole, he's talking about Catholicism in specific. And the first giveaway is in the very first paragraph here when, uh, you know, and I'm not sure what document people might be looking at, but it's in the first paragraph. And he says, in the theories of the crown and the mitre, man had no rights. Uh, that's a that's a swipe at Catholicism. That's not a swipe at Protestantism, nor is it a swipe at uh the Protestant Christianity that John Quincy Adams thinks is is the uh, the normative type of Christianity that that people ought to be observing, and in fact, this this document, speech on Independence Day, is is littered with phrases along the lines of uh, ecclesiastical usurpation, uh, uh, r- uh, religions founded in conquest and oppression uh let me see i could go on but i think you get the point i think what professor Sexton is saying is dead on target and in answer to the to the participant's question about religion i think that uh, it is at it is like slavery even though he mentions it john quincy adams it's another one of those subtexts that we might be uh, a little a little too eager to dismiss uh, because we want to for, focus on the the acquisitive nature of American policy after the Monroe administration, or the self righteousness of, uh, of of JQA when uh, when he's writing this. But yeah, religion is is very important, and I, I really echo uh,
1: Professor Sexton's comments along those lines. It's interesting that in this document he usually he actually uses the term holy alliance, but he means something very different by it. This is on, well, yeah, I don't know what, the, what what pagination it is. We all print these out differently, but it's something like the fifth page, uh, in the middle of the page for me. At the end of this paragraph, he, uh, well, of course, this, this sentence goes on and on, so I'm not sure where I should start, but uh, he says, And by the communion of soul in the uh, repurusal reperusal rather and hearing of this instrument to renew the genuine holy Alliance of its principles so the real Holy Alliance is not Prussia and Russia and Austria and 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 and, uh, and, and, and perhaps France depending on who's in charge um, but but rather the Holy Alliance is the sum of the principles expressed in the Declaration of Independence yeah. let's go back. Um, uh, one of our participants points out that that he uses some uh, it, somewhere in this there is specific praise of Luther, right? As is actually offering a a, a freedom from that bad kind of uh, of of religion which they would have regarded as Catholicism. Um, let's see. Well, let me ask this: um, What happened to the Monroe Doctrine? Uh, you know, obviously. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt invokes it in his famous corollary at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, and then repeatedly you heard it mentioned in reference to uh, the German threat and later on the communist threat, right? It gets talked about in, in, in the case of Cuba. I certainly remember in the 1980s hearing it mentioned in reference to Nicaragua and whether, whether Nicaragua would become a Soviet base in the Western Hemisphere. Was it invoked frequently in the 19th century? I I, I seem to recall hearing that the Monroe Doctrine had essentially been forgotten by the time of Teddy Roosevelt and he dusts it off and breathes new life into it. But what do the two of you have to say on that?
2: Well, I I actually, uh, 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 forgive me for interrupting you, uh, Professor Sexton, but uh, I think that's an exaggeration, the idea that uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, dusted off. I I don't think it was forgotten. I mean, I, I think that uh, you, have, uh, you have Buchanan talk about the, uh, the Monroe Doctrine. You've got, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember, uh, 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 what's his name? The, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Van Buren talk about the, uh, the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine is invoked uh, repeatedly, but it's, it's unable to be enforced. So if Teddy Roosevelt dusts it off, it's only because the nature of U.S. power has changed, but Americans from the 1830s into the uh, into the early 20th century are they they I, I won't say that they assert the Monroe Doctrine the way that Americans talk about the, you know that most important element of the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence all men are created equal but. Yeah, I, I I don't think the the Monroe Doctrine remains a more not moribund. It, it remains a dormant document throughout most of the uh, the nineteenth century. I I think it's just unenforceable. Uh, maybe Professor Sexton has a different approach.
0: Uh, no, I I mean I I yeah, it's I think it's it's it, you can find more references to it than um, one might think. I would say that what's most significant about the Monroe Doctrine in the 19th century is that it is very, very rarely invoked against uh, foreign powers, against uh, uh, European powers, which was the original uh, message. And it's far more often invoked against um, uh, internal domestic political opponents. So the the real story of the Monroe Doctrine in the nineteenth century is the story of a national symbol um, becoming a political football or or an instrument of partisan conflict, and this really starts, I think, with uh, James K. Polk, the the president of the eighteen forties, the president who's the architect of the the great policies of expansion, the um the 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 a- a- acquisition of California in particular but also the Oregon Territory in the Northwest, and his uh, campaign is also when the uh, Texas annexation unfolds, and this is when the Monroe Doctrine becomes for the first time the Monroe Doctrine. Be- before that, it was simply called the the message of uh, the annual message of Monroe, the seventh annual message of Monroe in eighteen twenty-three. Uh, Polk is one of the first ones to actually call it a doctrine, um, and he does so on behalf of a v- deeply divisive. Um, policy of expansion, so it's a clear example of the appropriation of a popular symbol from a, a, a popular president. I mean, Monroe's presidency, we don't really know much about it today but in the 1840s and 50s he was seen as a example of um, this pre-partisan past you were talking about the era of good feelings earlier a time in which americans weren't so divided in which they came up with compromise solutions to the the problems of the day Um, that gave great traction uh to to the monroe doctrine and it also it made it a very useful symbol to be exploited so um the the story i tell in the book that i wrote about the monroe doctrine is actually less about foreign policy although there's elements of it um uh, but it's more about the the domestic politics and um and 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 how these nationalist symbols um, across party lines, how they're uh, imagined and then reimagined, how they they change, they take on new forms, and how they give legitimacy and and power to those uh, who invoke them. And, and in that sense, though there's not much talk about the Monroe doctrine in the in the twentieth century or today by comparison, um, there's comparable symbols and images of American foreign policy. Um, uh, things like anti-communism during the Cold War—that's uh, something that definitely crosses party lines and is a powerful symbol. Um, things about national security and and the and 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 terrorism today. Again, um, there there's elements of foreign policy there, but there's also really important domestic political dimensions um, to them. Uh,
2: I, I'd like to jump in again, if I may, John, and uh, I just. I, I was taking notes, and I really, really appreciate the fact that uh, Jay focuses on um, domestic politics, uh, because really, my, uh, my 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 historical interest is is in foreign policy. And I was just looking through my through my notes and and several books in preparation for this, but uh, the Monroe Doctrine, or as uh, Professor Sexton appropriately says, uh, you know, uh, Monroe's speech is invoked uh, at least in cabinet discussions in the 1830s when the Britons, or when the Britons, when the British formally annexed the Falkland Islands. Uh, it's annexed again, or it's 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 made reference to again during a uh, uh, goodness, a 12-year period when Britain and France are blockading Argentina and uh between 1838 and 1850 uh argentina won't pay its debts and the british will not let the argentines uh and this is just a couple of years after they've taken the falklands away from argentina they're basically uh uh lording themselves over uh, uh, Argentina and will not let Argentina trade until its debts have been paid. Yeah. And the United States says, well, this is clearly a violation of Monroe's principles, but, but there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, during the Civil War, uh, uh, France's uh, Emperor Napoleon III uh, makes a, a, a bid to conquer Mexico and, and actually succeeds for quite a while. But the uh, the United States, given whether it's the Confederacy, well, I shouldn't say the United States, the Union. Neither the Union nor the Confederacy are in a position to uh, to prevent the uh, the French from conquering Mexico. And then, uh, of course, you have the uh, uh, during the Civil War. Also, you have the British uh, f- uh, conquest and then formal annexation, or let me phrase it, uh, conversion of British Honduras. Uh, which is now the country of Belize into a uh, into a colony so even before we get to Teddy Roosevelt American foreign policy makers Mm. are are very concerned about foreign intrusion in the Western Hemisphere but they're impotent to do anything about it and nothing Uh, I said negates anything that uh, no
0: but I add the the coda to to your points um, you know the, the the process of the circulation of of these powerful symbols of uh, foreign policy. That's you know it's not exclusively a domestic process. It my understanding my understanding of the um, the Buenos Aires um, issue in the 1830s was that it was the Argentines who came to the United States um and said uh, this is a clear violation of the monroe doctrine uh, during the civil war it was the mexican liberals the mexican um republicans those who opposed the french intervention they were the ones talking about the monroe doctrine um y- using it to coax to lure the united states out of its shell to uh, stand by the principles which it it's uh, one of its presidents had so publicly affirmed um, and that that's a really interesting uh, dynamic that's going on. And actually, when you when you move the story into the 20th century, um, it has a, a darker side in the sense that it's it's the Japanese imperialists of the 1930s who are invoking the Monroe Doctrine and saying that their uh, efforts that um, at expansion are only mimicking what the United States had done. So th- these symbols have an international as well as a. Um, uh, a, a domestic uh legacy and a very yeah, long-lasting yeah, you're, you're one you're making me furious
2: you, you stole my thunder i'm I'm so jealous <laughs> my, my uh, one of the points i was hoping to make tonight is that the uh the japanese co-pros uh, greater east asia co-prosperity sphere is really uh nothing more than a japanese assertion of, of the monroe doctrine yeah and it's the jack call it that yeah, look, this is this is our shtick. Look what we did. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 I, I really like that point a lot, especially when you start out by pointing out that it's the, the Venezuela, or it's the Argentinians and the Mexicans yeah. who say, please invoke the Monroe Doctrine. And then the Japanese later, like you say, take on this this really dark and and, and disturbing approach in, in the 1930s. And 40s when they basically say hey this is this is just the Japanese version of what America has been doing
0: and and then the one the one they want other thing to add not to I hope I don't steal your thunder again but uh, what what's 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 interesting is the trend that up through um, uh, Roosevelt uh, uh, up to up to Franklin Roosevelt I should say American presidents, when they're looking for some kind of symbol of their foreign policy, they try to present it or package it as the Monroe Doctrine or as a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine or something that loosely is connected to the Monroe Doctrine. What happens as the presidency, the power of the executive increases in the mid 20th century, the imperial presidency of the Second World War and the Cold War era is that presidents start developing their own doctrines. You know, so you got the Truman Doctrine, the Eisenhower Doctrine. You go all the way up, and and now it's just an expectation, right? I mean, I remember reading when I was finishing the book, <coughs> uh, Obama was coming into office, and everybody was right. Well, what's going to be the Obama Doctrine? I mean, the assumption was there had to be in Obama doctrine. Each president has to have their own distinctive spin, um, quite different from the 19th century when you had weak executives, weak presidents, um, disinclined to, ass- to assert their authority in particular overseas, um, but assert their authority in general. And So when they did, they wanted to present it or package it as part of a, a tradition. Of presidential power going back to to Monroe a rather weak president when you think of him in the in the broad uh, scale or scheme of things uh, those early 19th century presidents
1: Eric I'll give you the last word Uh, on this subject on anything you like related to the Monroe doctrine since we're almost out of time okay
2: here's what I want to say I wanted to boy there's a lot of 20th century stuff we could have talked about this but here's what I want to say I I think it's really interesting that as recently as 2013 John Kerry Secretary of State John Kerry declared an end to the Monroe Doctrine and uh it depends on what news source you're reading but Kerry's words are greeted either with uh great acclaim and fanfare or uh, uh, yawning boredom. And uh, I just I think what's what's important about the Obama presidency is that President Obama uh, through Kerry, essentially said that the era of the United States either protecting Latin America, which is the basic idea of the um, uh, of the Monroe Doctrine, uh, Central and South America, or the idea of the United States intruding in Latin America is, is over, it's gone, it's done with. And uh, I think that uh, that's really interesting because it is a repudiation or at least a turning of the page on what I think has been the most important foreign policy document to justify American behavior in the 19th and 20th centuries.
1: All right, well, I wanna thank uh, both of our participants, Eric and Jay, uh, our our panelists rather, as well as our participants for their questions. Uh, Just a reminder about the email you will receive with a link for a certificate of participation. That will be coming in the next couple of days. Uh, If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. These are also offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, Eric teaches in that that program. Maybe we'll get Jay involved in it too at some point. You can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. You can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you will receive via email next week. Please send that to your colleagues and share it on social media if you are so inclined. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, November 15th, when our subject will be Frederick Douglass' What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. At that time, I will be joined by Dr. Emily Hess of Ashland University and Dr. Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. The the recommended readings for that webinar have been posted. So I hope to see you back here. Well, uh, with any luck, I will be in Ashland, uh, but uh, on uh, the evening of of November 15th. Thanks a lot, and have a great evening.
0: Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org/webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.